Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Matthew chapter 5, verses 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Today we are looking at, at, at this topic of, of, of blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And what I've discovered about this text is that our uh, our identity in God as His children is linked to the activity of us making peace actively uh, between one another and the world. Uh, and so our big idea of where we're going today is this, is only children of God can truly make peace. Uh, I love Disney princess movies. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know that uh, my favorite is Cinderella, but today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step it down a notch and talk about Beauty and the Beast. And, you know, my, my wife uh, loves uh, Beauty and the Beast. And whenever she was uh, younger, she had the opportunity, I think, to, to check out the Broadway musical of Beauty and the Beast, the play or something. Yeah. And, uh, and her parents kind of as a, uh, got her some memorabilia to kind of, uh, you know, remember that time. And so she has this really nice uh, snow globe and this little kind of figure skating kind of thing that you, and it plays the song, you know, you know, the song Beauty and the Beast. It's a great song. Uh, and, um, and so anyway, we, uh, whenever we got married, had all this stuff. And we're like, what do we do with this? This clearly doesn't go on the dresser in our room. I don't think it maybe does. So we decided when we had a daughter that we would put it in her room. Uh, so, you know, Tatum now being seven years old has, you know, these collectibles on top of her, uh, dresser in her room. And, um, you know, fast forward uh, to a few months ago, and uh, we are downstairs in our house, and the kids are upstairs, and we hear this shrieking scream, and everybody is panicking, and we walk upstairs to find that the snow globe has busted all over the carpet. And uh, we walk in, and I don't know if you've ever had one of those busts before, but there's something in there that is, it can't be good for you, whatever it is, whatever makes it sparkle and stays like that, but it's impossible to get out of carpet, let me just say that. And so we're going in there, and we're kind of figuring out what happened, triaging the situation, but it becomes clear we cannot piece back together the snow globe. It's done. It is finished. And so uh, what I was reminded of whenever we walked up there that day is that, um, you know, for one... What were we thinking putting collectibles in kids' rooms? You know what I mean? Like, what were, we, what were we doing? We were putting these collectibles that we wanted to keep and pass down generation to generation. We were putting them in our kids' rooms. Of course, they're going to get broken. And when I think about God's creation, I often wonder, what was God thinking? Putting creation, fragile creation, relationships and nature and everything together in the hands of children. And, and you and I know how the story plays out with creation is that he put the snow globe in our room and we broke it too. And we have been experiencing the effects of that brokenness ever since then. And this is why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, 
They should be called sons of God because we see ourselves, we find ourselves in this great conflict today. And, and that's kind of the, the frame of reference that I'm going to use to describe how sin has infected the world and how we have to live out of that distortion of God's image now is this, this idea of almost an eternal conflict that we experience and what Jesus came to do about that. So, um, when, when, we, when we look at the Beatitudes, though, uh, we're, we're almost finished with, with the, the Beatitudes, which are the, the first set of, of sayings that Jesus has in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Beatitudes, I'm learning, are like nails in a coffin. Uh, and, and each one of them puts another nail in the coffin. And it's a, this coffin of the false understanding of salvation. Uh, and so this sermon is about showing us what grace has come to do in and through our lives. Um, it, it challenges us to consider and reconsider the, the substance of our salvation. That, that if our lives are not actually changed by God, then you wonder if there is salvation present. Now, now I'm not saying that salvation is by works, but in another sense, salvation works. You know what I'm saying? That's what James says. Salvation, faith without works is dead. So peacemaking is an evidence of grace that God has given us. And so this morning, I've been begging God to make it clear to us what He's after in us. So some things that I'm going to ask you to consider as we look at this text today are this. Let's look at the, 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 the personal side of peacemaking with God. Are we at peace with God right now? Are we one with God? Are we communing with God this morning? Or is there great conflict between us and God? Are we at peace with one another? Are there active conflicts between you and other people that you are denying the power of the Holy Spirit to come and resurrect those relationships? Now, I'm not saying the outcomes are up to us, but the effort certainly is up to us to make peace. Consider those things as we look at the text this morning. So here, here's the first thing that I've discovered about conflict and about us, is that we're all in conflict. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're actually going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 this morning. So I'll read that for us as we get in this morning. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 says this, Therefore, remember... Therefore, remember. He says, therefore. Now, anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, it's there for a reason, right? So just before this, we have some of the most gospel-rich, saturated scriptures in all of the Bible. Where Paul says, hey, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, but by faith through grace, God has made you alive. And this is not of yourself so that no one can boast. It is the gift of God, and you were created in Christ Jesus for good works in which God has prepared in advance so that you could walk in them. That's it's kind of what Ephesians 2 1 through 10 says. And so he says, in light of that beautiful, glorious grace that you and I get to experience through faith, he says, therefore, remember. Therefore, remember your life. Remember, let's pick up in verse 11 here, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, he's talking to an, a church in the city of Ephesus that is a predominantly Gentile, that means non-Jewish uh, congregation. He said, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So the Jews were, were, were calling them that, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember 
that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. How's that for giving you some hope in a little pep talk this morning? You were absolutely nothing. You were desolate. You were hopeless. And he says you've got to remember that. You've got to remember what you were before God in order to live at peace with God and other people. He's not saying you need to dwell on past sins. He's saying you need to think about your past condition. And when you think about your past condition before God met you, it changes the way that you look at God and other people because you realize it was all of grace. It was all of grace. So he said we've got to remember that we were alienated from God. Not only were we alienated from God, separated from God, but we're also separated from God's people. So there was no hope for peace in light of that. Now we must remember where we've come from. Uh, unless we avail ourselves to God in such a way, uh, we will never, ever, 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 ever be able to experience the peace that comes from God that Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, that surpasses all understanding. He says you'll never be able to experience this peace apart from Jesus. So you've got to remember your condition before you met Jesus. And if, you, if you're in here today and you've not yet met Jesus, this is your current condition. It's not me being a bully or mean or, or, or saying something you know, um, that's not true. It's the, actually the most loving thing that I can do to you this morning is to tell you that you are separate from God right now. If you, if you don't trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, you're separate from God and there's no way that you can experience peace on the inside or peace in relationships if you're not made one with God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no way around it. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says it like this. For if while we were enemies, so what does that tell us? Not only were we separated from God, but we were His enemies because of sin. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life? We were enemies of God because of our sin, because of the brokenness in creation, because we broke the snow globe of His precious creation. We were enemies. And, and here's, here's the deal. Every conflict that we experience in life comes from the great conflict that we have between us and God, this alienation. So every, every conflict that you and I experience is a repercussion of this. Every tiff, every misunderstood word, every injustice, every distorted use of power, Every manifestation of evil is, is a manifestation of this great conflict that we have between us and God. It's a reverberation. It's a repercussion that we are now broken individuals, as Patrick talked about earlier, and we now reflect a broken image of God. And there's no way to put back the pieces of that broken image of God other than through faith in Jesus. So to, to kind of recap this, this is foundational for our understanding today. We're born into conflict, and every conflict that you experience, whatever comes to your mind right now when you hear the word conflict, whether it be between nation and nation, whether it be between family and family, or person and person, community and community, it all stems 
from this idea. And when we understand the depth of our conflict with God, it helps us to have grace for ourselves and for others on seeking the way forward. So second point I want to make is this, is that God had to send His Son into the conflict to make peace. He had to lean into the conflict. So let's pick up in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13-17 through 17 here this morning. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that He might create in Himself. Get this. One new man. Create in Himself one new man in place of the two. And that's what peace is. That's what He says. And, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So, uh, what is peace? What is peace? Is it the absence of conflict? I would argue that's, that could mean that there's peace, but most times probably doesn't. Peace is far more than the absence of conflicts. There's this idea of false peace that we can experience. Now, false peace is anything that brings peace into your life apart from Jesus Christ because the Scriptures say that He is peace. Jesus is peace. So if, you're tr- if we're trusting something other than Jesus to bring peace into our hearts, whether it's avoidance or whether it's compromise, whatever it would be in our hearts and in our lives, It is a false promise. It will not withstand uh, judgment. It it will not lead us into eternity. And I think we settle for this appearance of peace without the substance of peace many times. Uh, I think that conflict is a grace that shows us that we are not experiencing His peace. And then God invites us into experience His peace through conflict. I mean, th- this idea of peace in the Old Testament was, was called shalom. Say that with me. Shalom. Try to use that in a sentence this week, alright? There's your challenge. Shalom. What is shalom? Sh- so shalom is the, the way that things should be. So you look at the way that things are in your life and in the world, and we say, man, things shouldn't be like this, don't we? I mean, you watch the news, you think about your family dynamics, your relationships with your coworkers, and you think, man, things shouldn't be this way. Do you know why we say that? Because we have in our mind a way that things should be. And that's because God has planted eternity in the hearts of men, as the Scriptures say. He's planted this idea of eternal life in us, and we spend our lives trying to find it. That's why we fill our lives with so many things and appearances of peace. And the Scripture said there's no way you'll find it other than Jesus. So shalom is the way things should be. A universal wholeness and flourishing and delight of all creation between God and one another. So this idea of flourishing, that everybody has the same chance to thrive in creation. There's no one-upmanship. There's no one that suffers at the expense of someone else stepping on top of them. Everybody has an equal opportunity to thrive. And everyone has an equal opportunity to delight in Jesus. And you and I know that's not the way the world works. And so we find that God sends Jesus 
to usher in shalom, to usher in peace. But here's the deal. It's not the way that we expect it to come. Instead of restoring uh, institutions and systemic issues, Jesus starts by restoring hearts. And He knows from out of the, the, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, that actions come from changed hearts. And so Jesus births new hearts through faith. So, so shalom is this idea that an individual's peace with God not only affects himself, but also his community. And we as Westerners have a really difficult time connecting those dots that God would be interested in redeeming and renewing us and giving us peace so that we can share that and foster others into that type of peace. But that's what Jesus has come to do. Shalom is this holistic condition of a soil where peace can grow. It's this, it's this t- type of euphoria that we think is not possible this side of heaven. And we're probably right on that. But what we know from the Scriptures in Revelation is that Jesus has come and He says, Behold, I am making all things new. He doesn't say I'm making new things, although He is making new hearts in us. But He's making all things new through the hearts and lives of His people, His kingdom. That's what shalom is. So Jesus comes to make this new humanity. Now, so, so, so through the cross, Jesus tears down this dividing wall of hostility. And what you need to know about that phrase is that in, in the Jewish temple, there are actually what is called the Gentile courts, where only Gentiles could go to this certain point. There was actually a wall and a plaque on the wall that said, if you're a Gentile, you, can, you cannot worship any further than this. You cannot go any further with your relationship with God than this part. So, so when we think about, uh, we think about Sunday mornings now, we we think about, you know, people say Sunday morning is the most divided hour. Uh, you know, 11 o'clock in, on Sunday morning is the most divided hour uh, in the country. And, and I would agree with that, but what, what these Scriptures tell us in the relationship between Jews and Gentiles was, was uh, the, the prejudice and the self-righteousness between those two Races and lifestyles was, was, I would argue, far greater than even anything we've ever seen in our country or in the world. It was, it was a strong prejudice So through the cross, Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. Scripture said that we now, uh, He's now made one new man in the place of two. So, so whatever you think divides you from other people, if you're in Jesus, the, the, the most real and true identity that you have is in Jesus. Not in your workplace, not in your neighborhood, not in your race, not in your socioeconomic class. That is not the most real version of who you are. It is in Jesus Christ because He has torn down the dividing wall of hostility and He has created one new man in the place of two. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to enter in, to lean into the conflict between us and God. Because all of these things that divide us, that, 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 that we see conflict in, are all a result of us not being at peace with God. They're all a result of that. So it doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, man, woman, slave, free, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, rich or poor, the truest version of yourself is this new humanity that you experience in Jesus. 
So the, your brothers and sisters that are in this room, is what the Scriptures are saying, is that they are closer to you than your blood relatives are, spiritually speaking. Now, this is why we focus so much on sharing life together, right? Because we've got to learn how to live as the family of God so that we can reflect the family of God to creation all around us. It's the, it's, it's the truest version of who we are. He, Jesus came to enter into the conflict for you and for me so that we could experience peace with God forever. And so, we could live out of this identity of being peacemakers because we're children of God. But, here, but here's the catch. We are responsible as the church to avail ourselves to make ourselves conduits of God's peace all around us. Now, uh, let, let's look quickly at how God sent Jesus to come and make peace. I just got four words for you, and I think they're actually very applicable to what it looks like for us to be peacemakers. The first one is this, and I think they're connected in a linear fashion. Love. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. Now, John 3.16, many of you know that verse by heart. I think Deuteronomy 7 tells us what that love is like. When, 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 when God looks down at Israel, and He says, hey guys, it's not because you're the biggest nation it's not because you're beautiful to look at that I love you, but basically I love you because I love you. I love you because you're mine. The reason that God sent Jesus is not because He needed you. It's not because He needed me. It's not because He needed any of us. It's because He loves us. And He knows that we broke His creation. He planned it from the beginning of time so that we could see His love in all of its glory. It's not because He looked at it as He found us lovable. We are lovable because He loves us. As, as 1 John 4 says, we love because He first loved us. We know what love is and long for what love is because He's first loved us. So, so the first kind of movement of peace is love. God looks and He loves. The second is this, humility. And we learn from Philippians chapter 2 that when God sent Jesus... Jesus could have come as the conquering king of Revelation 21 and 22 that the Jews thought he was going to come as, but instead he came into Jerusalem riding a borrowed donkey and weeping as they waved the palm branches and he rode in. And Philippians 2 describes it like this. Who though, Philippians 2, 6 and 7, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead... He empties Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus came to make peace by submitting Himself to absolute humility. Not availing Himself of the privilege of being the only Son of God at the time. He didn't count that a thing to be grasped. He didn't do a power play and say, I'm getting out of here when the cross came. But he humbled himself down lower and lower and lower so that he could enter into the conflict that we have gotten ourselves into and make peace. Incarnation is very similar to humility, but I think it's the action of humility. What, what, what humility looks like when it's in movement. John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So, Jesus comes and He enters into our story by taking on flesh 
and becoming like us. He incarnates into the story. He doesn't just come alongside of us, but He enters into the narrative. He enters into the conflict that we have between us and God. And and as you know, He becomes the object of God's wrath against all we've gotten ourselves into in breaking His creation. He becomes the one that God pours out all of His wrath on so that we could have peace with God. And lastly, sacrifice. So love, humility, incarnation, and sacrifice. Luke 19, I shared this verse with you a second ago. When Jesus comes in and He's riding on the donkey and He stops the procession of the parade that's happening celebrating the coming King to Jerusalem. He stops and He says, hold up. In tears, He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And what we see from this truth here is that we have no idea what it would take for us to have peace. We just know that we all desperately long for it. We don't know, but the good, th- the good news is, is that God knows. And that's why He sent Jesus on our behalf. So that is the, that is the, the, the pathway of the peacemaker. It's what Jesus had to come and do. Now, we didn't have the power to do this before Jesus came. So Jesus had to do it on His own. That's why all His disciples abandoned Him when He was on the cross. They all left Him. They all scattered. Like sheep without a shepherd, they left Him. They abandoned Him. And He was the only one that could bear the cross of Calvary to make peace with us. Because of that, you have a new heart if you believe in Jesus. And God has done a new work in you. You're you're not strangers to God anymore. You're not in conflict with God anymore. You're not not just citizens of this kingdom. You're not just pawns that He moves around to get what He wants accomplished. Instead, He says, you're sons. You're daughters of the Most High King. He knows you by name. He knows the amount of hairs on your head. He loves you. And He has made a way for you to have peace. And lastly, God has now sent His sons, plural, lowercase. God has now sent His sons into the conflict to make peace. God is ascending God. He sent Jesus, and now what He does is He sends me and He sends you into the conflict that the world has experienced because of their alienation from God. And we are ambassadors of His kingdom, ushering it in to make peace between God and men by telling them the way of peace and exemplifying the way of peace. Making peace. It's interesting that Paul says in Ephesians 6 uh, about what he says about the armor of God because he talks about uh, you know, what the helmet of salvation, uh, the, the breastplate of uh, righteousness, the, the belt of truth, you know, the sword of the Spirit, maybe leaving one out, the shoes, the gospel shoes of what? Peace. So why are, why are peace on the shoes? Because we move into, with the armor of God, we move into the conflict carrying the peace of God within us. As Paul says in other places, we always carry around the death of Jesus in us so that the life of Jesus might be displayed through us. 
We're carrying the peace of God with us. And it's, we have gospel shoes of peace because they're intended to move toward conflict. This is what evangelism is, church. When we share the good news about Jesus, we're entering into the conflict that someone else is having between themselves and God. And we're praying that God would open their heart with the news that they can now have peace with God for eternity. And we do this in lots of different ways and fashions. When God tears down this wall of hostility in our hearts, He gives to us a new identity, a new way of life. The old way of life is no longer suitable for sons and for daughters. And so all of us are relearning how to live as sons and daughters because we've spent so long living as orphans, fending for ourselves, protecting ourselves. But when you're a son or a daughter, you have an advocate. God has sent the Spirit to be your advocate, to be your guarantee that the adoption is real and it's true and Jesus is coming for you and it's even real today. And so we walk into this new identity and faith making peace in the conflict because of the power of the Holy Spirit is going before us. So Paul, Paul kind of channels this whole argument in Ephesians 2 like this. So then you're no longer stra- strangers and aliens. This is how he starts Ephesians 2.11. That's no longer you. But you are fellow citizens and saints. Notice how he moves from the impersonal to the personal here. Members of the household of God. Now a citizen or a, a citizen can, can lose their citizenship, right? You, you could lose your citizenship. You cannot lose your identity as a member of the, the household of God. You can't lose that. It's very personal. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. This is what it looks like to live as a peacemaker. Is that the whole, the whole building of our lives, if, it, if we were to describe it as a building, it's all based on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ resurrecting from the dead and making a way for us to have peace with God. It's all centered on that. There is no peace without Him. And Matthew 5.9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Your sonship in God gives way for you to make peace. So let me bring this down to some brass tacks now, some application points, some some illustrations that may be helpful for you to say, God, what is next for me? I mean, I have this desire within me, but what do I do with it? I've got this, this beatitude before me, but how do I live out of it? Let's go back to those four things that Jesus did to make peace. We said the first one was love. That God loved, so He sent. So we're reminded of how uh, unconditional love came to rescue us. So we, we think about that often. That we were aliens, we were strangers, we were in exile. We think about that. And this is the basis of all our Christian living. Is that we have been so deeply loved that we now have love to give. Because if you have not been deeply loved by God, you have nothing to give. You don't have any love to give. And so maybe, maybe you're stuck here this morning, and I'm being honest here. Maybe you're stuck because you have never, you've never let God actually love you. 
It's always been this quid pro quo relationship where, you know, he kind of gets you out of hell and you kind of do some stuff for him. That's not the unconditional love that God shows in Jesus. Love. Second, humility. So this moves us from this entitled and legalistic perspective of life. We lay down the sword and we pick up the towel. Because we're so deeply loved, we no longer have to find our identity and what we can do for ourselves. And so we, like Jesus in John 13, we pick up the towel and we begin to wash the feet of those around us. And when you have a posture of humility living inside of you because you're at peace with God, the implications of what God can and will do through you are endless. Because you know what? A watching world that's not at peace with God doesn't know what to do with unmerited favor and service. It cannot deny it. It doesn't know how to explain it. People will try to give you money when you step into their lives. They'll try to find a way to pay it back. And you're there to say there's nothing you can do because there's nothing I did to receive this. Incarnation. This might be the the hardest one for us here. So when the Holy Spirit uh, uh, comes upon us and we have life in Jesus, we're adopted into His family, we're filled with the Spirit in those moments. There's not like the second filling. We're filled with the Spirit. We're learning to live out of it. And we become awakened as we go, but we already have the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is within us and He makes us ambassadors of peace. But it's not the type of peace that that the world would, would think of. It's this real enduring peace between us and God. But, but the incarnation peace is that we have to step into the conflict. So sometimes it is a literal conflict, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. It is a literal conflict between two people and you feel like God is inviting you into it to help make peace. Sometimes it is a conflict between you and someone else. Sometimes it is a conflict between things like socioeconomic classes and racism and all of the injustices that we see around us that God invites us into with the spirit of peace. And sure, it's messy, It's uncalculated, but we're overflowing with peace and we offer that in those moments. Lastly, sacrifice. There is no such thing as peace without sacrifice. Peace comes with a price. This is what we see of Jesus when when God sends His Son to give His life so that we can have peace. For us to be peacemakers, it will cost us something. As Jesus said, it will cost us everything. If you want to be up a, a disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me monthly, weekly. No, follow me daily if you want to be a disciple. There's sacrifice involved. And sometimes that sacrifice is your pride. Sometimes that sacrifice that you make to make peace is laying down your ability to be right in a conversation. You just, you just lay that down. It doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong. What matters is that you're in conflict and God desires peace. You just lay that down. And I think there's this idea of cheap peace that I talked about earlier. Uh, and cheap, cheap peace uh, is peace that comes about um, and that is, is promoted without the cross. So the cross is not at the end of the peace that's offered. It's, it's, it's not a death of ourselves so that others can live. Instead, it's, it's, it's a compromise somewhere in the middle. And it, it ultimately will never lead to peace. You might have the appearance of, of calmness, but it doesn't lead to eternal life. 
It doesn't lead to shalom. It just leads to avoidance. So, so I want to I look at uh, three relationships on how peace works itself out as we, as we close here. Uh, the first one is this. Uh, individually. So how do we have peace with God individually? I've hinted at it. I've talked about it this morning. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The best thing that God can give you in your life today if you are not yet a follower of Jesus is absolute conflict. Absolute disparity. I, I'm serious. I, I, <laughs> if, you, if you're resisting the, the wooing call of God to redeem you, to fill you with His grace, the best thing that can happen to you is to realize that you can't do life on your own. And we see that as a, as, a, as a, I used to see that as a problem and I felt like so bad when these things would happen. I, I do have compassion. I'm not saying that I don't, but conflict is the, it drives us to the feet of Jesus. So whatever you've experienced in your life, I'm speaking in particular about like hardships. They've probably led you to the foot of Jesus, to the feet of Jesus, to the cross of Jesus, and that is by design. Conflict leads us to this desperate place of longing for more of Jesus. And so my encouragement to you would be today is not to avoid conflict. I mean, don't go looking for it. You know what I'm talking about? You don't have to go looking for it. It'll find you. You don't have to go making it. But when it shows its face, maybe ask this question, God, what are you inviting me into today? What are you inviting me into? Uh, interpersonally here, uh, kind of hinted at this a little bit, but I want to use two very practical scriptures. And, and basically, what this means is that you will leave with two things where you know exactly how to build the kingdom of God today. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's crystal clear in the scriptures. So conflict between one another. What do we do with that? Matthew 18, uh, 15 through 17. This won't be on the screen. I'll read it for you. He says this, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault. Do you know how much conflict is resolved by doing this? I'm not kidding. This is the step that almost no one's willing to take. Because what happens is when we have unresolved conflict because someone has sinned against us, we kind of bury it and say, ah, it's all right. I'm not going to deal with it right now. And the enemy uses it to mill around in your heart to distort your desires and your relationships to a point where you are bitter and hurt and you don't even know where it came from. The best thing that you can learn to do, this is for everyone in the room, whether you're a kid, whether you're an adult, whether you're five or 75, when conflict comes up between you and someone else, face it immediately. Don't let the sun go down. Face it immediately. Let it inconvenience you because the Holy Spirit wants to do something in your life through that. I promise you. Every single time I enter into that, God does something amazing. He goes on to say, uh, between you and, you and Him alone initially, if He listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if He does not listen to you, take a couple of friends along with you. Uh, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then if He refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Rarely do you see things go to that measure. Most conflict the Holy Spirit deals with when two believers come together and they talk about it. And if, if there's a misunderstanding there, you bring a couple people along with you. And if it's not handled there, it's typically handled in that situation. 
So that, that's a very concrete way for you to see the kingdom of God established this week in and through your life for you to be a peacemaker. The other one is this. This is where Jesus really jacks us up, okay? Matthew chapter 5, 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So it's, it's not, you don't need, it, it, Jesus is saying you're called to be a peacemaker even if someone else has sinned against you. Like even if you're not guilty of anything, you have a responsibility to lean into the conflict. He says that it is better, it is, it is more pleasing worship to him to enter in and seek reconciliation than to give anything. That blows my mind. This is where you see the humility of Jesus filling the life of the believer. He calls us to that. It's the second way you can see the kingdom of God established this week. Basically, if there's any conflict, you're called to lean into it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Jesus calls us to that. And the third, third uh, relationship I want to talk about as far as us being peacemakers is uh, communally. And I want to think about that. I want to bring back that idea of shalom. That idea of holistic peace uh, where everyone... Uh, has the opportunity to delight and thrive and flourish in light of who God is and who they are in light of Him. Uh, so being a peacemaker means uh, to intentionally help relieve the effects of the fall by offering our peace with God to others. See, the friends that you have that are in great conflict right now, individually between them and God, and their lives are a mess, they don't have the ability to make peace in their life, okay? It's really important for you to understand that. You can't tell a blind person to go see. The only way for them to have peace with God, as Romans 10.17 says, is faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of the Lord. We enter into the conflict as messy as it may be, and we offer the peace that God has given us to them. And it's up to God to awaken souls in light of that. I want to share a few examples of what being a peacemaker has looked like in the lives of some people of this church. And I'm going to keep this pretty anonymous uh, because none of these, I haven't asked any of these people if I could share this. I'm just going to do it. Um, <laughs> but um, I'll keep it anonymous. I might just look at you. I'm just kidding. Um, so I just want to share a few examples of what this has looked like. So there's... Um, Two brothers in this, in this church began sharing life uh, in the last two years. One of them has been here the whole time. Another one recently started attending. Uh, and they were, they were in a meeting together talking about some ministry stuff that they were partnered in. And uh, one of them received a discriminatory uh, farewell card from a coworker because he was switching contracts at uh, his job. And it was because of his race. And uh, the other brother uh, felt the pain of this injustice, and he sat, <laughs> he sat at the table, and he wept with his brother because of the pain that he saw his brother felt because he's closer to him than he even is a lot of his family. And I listened to these guys, the other guys, share the story of how this impacted him. And I just want to tell you this, that sometimes peacemaking comes without a word being said. It comes with incarnating into relationships that God invites you into and just being a presence. What is that saying? 90% of life is showing up? 
I think it's true. Showing up. Showing up being where God calls you to be. Peacemaking isn't always about words. Sometimes it's about presence more than that. Uh, there's another story about a man uh, here in New City who was uh, at another church 10 plus years ago and they were doing a cookout in a pretty impoverished uh, part of town this church was and he met a man at the event. Uh, we'll call him Larry. And, and Larry to this guy wasn't, he wasn't a project. Um, he, became, he became a friend. And, and, and Larry had some needs that, um, that could easily be met. And they weren't just financial needs. They were just needs of, that could be met easily by helping someone out and showing up in their life. And uh, so, so Larry became a permanent fixture in this family's life. I mean, two years ago, I was at an event and I met Larry uh, at, this, at this event that we were at, this family function, and I thought he was just part of the family. He was a permanent fixture in the family. Um, so, so Larry uh, had a standing meeting with this guy every Friday morning where uh, he'd be taken to the grocery store because he wasn't uh, able to drive, didn't have a car. And then they would, uh, they would go to breakfast together every Friday morning for, for 10 years or so, maybe more. They had this. Now, <clears throat> recently Larry went on to be uh, with the Lord, but I share that story because I was so touched by it because you would never know this about meeting this man. But herein, he stepped into the conflict seeing that there was, there was a need that he could meet and God invited him into it and he just showed up and he showed up over time. And I have no doubt in my mind that this man was probably eternally changed because of his presence in his life. And I even think about, even at a bigger scale, guys, uh, some, some of you are involved in, in peacemaking uh, really at a political level. Um, I mean, I think about some of the most vulnerable individuals in society are, are unborn children. There, there are people in this church that are fighting for the rights of unborn children day in and day out. It is what they have given their lives to, things such as that, to see the common grace of God come to bear upon all of creation. There are others of you there that are invested at a political level and seeing education be more fair and equal for people in all parts of a city. That's good and great and needed. The bottom line for us this morning is this. Wherever God calls you to make peace, wherever He shows you and reveals the conflict that creation is in around you, enter into it. Enter into it. You don't have to have all the answers. You've got the Holy Spirit living inside of you who will give you power in that moment. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we come to You this morning and uh, we thank You that You've called us to be peacemakers. And we, we confess to You today that, um, that we often neglect our relationship with You. We often uh, think far too little of our identity as Your children. And as we think about that, God, it changes how we live our lives. And so God, I pray that You would take us a step deeper into that identity that You've given us this morning. I pray that You would lead us to the paths of righteousness for Your name's sake. And God, that New City Church would continue to be even more so a church that's about seeing people be at peace with God. God, we know it's going to be messy. 
but it always is. And so we pray that you give us power and faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.